Well, it is so good to be with our Cartersville family. How are you guys doing? Yeah, I, I, uh, I love being... I t- here's my new favorite thing, other than James, of course. He's, he's our favorite thing. But the, uh, um, I, love, I love James's leadership, and it's, it's great to be here with you guys. I love the stairs right here, okay? Because I've had to... Before, when I've been here, there's been no easy way to get up here. So I have to come from back there and that kind of thing. I love this because I can be out here and worship with, with, with you all and, and, and get the spit from Matt on the front row. And No, that doesn't happen. I'm just kidding. It, it lands in his hair. It's kind of strange. The, uh, no, um, uh, I love that. And, and I love because I get to hear you. And, and you sound good. I mean, lift it up. You, you get, there's a little bit of morning voice in the first song. And then after that... You work it out. As long as it's not morning breath, we're okay. You just keep it coming, okay? The, um, hey, I got to do something. This is weird, and some of you know me um, a little, and you've heard me speak before. A lot of you haven't. Um, but I got to do something, kind of, if you don't mind. Um, my 82, maybe 83-year-old grandmother just got an iPad this week. And uh, it's her, yeah, no kidding. The, um, uh, she has her first email address, and, and, um, and now I... I can like show her our church. I've, I've been in Georgia for 15 years and she's never seen our church where we live and, and that kind of thing. And, and I especially want her to see you guys. So I'm going to shoot a video real quick. And um, I'm trying to just do this. It won't take but a second. I'm trying to just do this every, uh, every service so I can get some good footage and later on iMovie I can make it look good. So um, just look happy, okay? That's all I ask, okay? And uh, so I'm going to start with the cross because that's what you're supposed to do. And so... Um, all right, so just hang on. We'll get started in a sec. Just, but be active participants right now, okay? Okay. The li- I can't figure out what to do with the light on this thing. Well, she doesn't want to see my palm. Okay. Some of you don't look happy. Okay. Can you wave or something? Do be, yeah. Okay. It's granny to you, okay? It's granny. Thank you. All right, Good. I have grannies and papas in my life, okay? I don't know about the rest of you. Shout out to papa. All right, thanks, guys. The, uh, the cool thing is that now that, that she's been walking with Jesus long enough to have an Apple uh, piece of equipment, the, um, I can, like, from, from my Apple device, I can, I can just email this right to her, and she can be watching it on her iPad, which I can't wait to see her use, by the way. And, um, and uh, so thanks for doing that. Okay. Where were we? Okay. The reason I called you here. Hi. We're looking at a, at a series uh, on the last statements that Jesus made on the cross, his last words. And, and before we get to today's last words that we're going to focus on, I, I want to give you just a little bit of prequel information, if you will. This is kind of a popular thing to do. You, know, you make the movies you want, and then you go back and you make other ones to make more money. And, and that's not exactly what we're doing. But I want to give you the prequel information today that lead us up to these last words on the cross. So instead of starting with a scene at the cross, I want to start in John chapter 13, if we could. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. Just don't take for granted that it's going to be on the screens, but learn how to use your Bible. Take this time and use it. So John chapter 13, if you're using uh, your Apple device or your Android, whatever you know you need to use, uh, version, you can follow along as well. And uh, we'd love to invite you to do that. John chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, this is the last meal. The scene is the last supper that Christ was having with his disciples before he would be betrayed. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another. This is just the 12, not any of the others who had been following him. Just the 12, no women in the room. Uncertain of whom he spoke. 
one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, one of my favorite things about the Bible is that every word is inspired by God, but God used human authors to bring it about. So the Holy Spirit, however that worked, the, the Holy Spirit would, would guide these guys and, and men and women in, into what to write. But the interesting thing is here, because of we're using people, there's personalities involved. And if you read carefully, particularly in the Gospels, it seems to come out a lot, you really get to pick up on some of the interesting things of their personalities. One of my favorite things to read in the Gospels is whenever Peter and John are together. I mean, there's just kind of, there, there's an interesting relation, relational dynamic that's going on here. I don't know how old Peter was. I don't know if he's one of the older disciples, but, but he carries himself with some authority. He's, he's very brash. I mean, he's, he's the guy that jumped out of the boat when Jesus was walking on the water and saying, hey, can I come do that too? And, and you know, and, and, and did that. I mean, he's, he's, he's very aggressive. He says what he's thinking. Even, you know, he, he talks before he thinks. All of those kinds of things. That's Peter. And then John, according to the Gospels, John appears to be the youngest of the disciples. And this scene at the Last Supper, he's leaning against Jesus. So apparently he's a bit of a cuddler, which is okay. The, um, and, and, but there's just some different dynamics here. And if you notice, Peter actually asked John to ask him the question, which is really interesting to me because Peter's always so brash. I don't know why he just didn't ask it, but the betrayal is such a big deal that, okay, I'm, I'm going to have... I'm going to have John, you know, ask this question. Another thing that's interesting about this passage is John is known as the disciple that Jesus loved. It's interesting because he's only known that in the book of John. I mean, here's a guy writing one of the Gospels, and his personality is coming out. And it's like every once in a while, he just wants to throw out there, I'm the favorite, by the way, just want you guys to know, this is where I am, this is where I'm coming from. I love the dynamic between these two. One of my favorite moments is in John chapter 21. You should go and read this later on. It, it's, a, it's a neat passage, it's an important passage. It's actually after the resurrection. And there's, again, there's some playing back and forth between John and Peter, just to give you a little sense of this. Jesus actually gives, after his resurrection, he's talking to the guys along the Sea of Galilee, and he actually gives a little prophecy about Peter's death. Now, scriptures don't record Peter's death, but history does. And history tells us that Peter was crucified on an upside-down cross. And Jesus actually predicts it in John 21. Now, how does Peter react to that? Well, this is kind of fun. He actually points at John and says, what's going to happen to him? That's his response. And Jesus didn't take the time to tell him, well, John's going to get to retire on a desert island and write a few books, you know, kind of tropical place. He doesn't tell him that. He just says, what does it matter to you? But you can see all the different things that are, that are going back and forth between these guys. And it seems like mo most people who know the circumstances around the death of Christ, we know what Peter did, right? I mean, it makes all the movies. Peter is the guy who denied Jesus three times the night before his death. So we have Peter, the one who, who denies. We have John, who's the disciple that Jesus loved, according to John. And he's the guy who 
leans into Jesus. He's very close to him. And so many of us know different dynamics about these two guys. You know, the interesting thing about Peter is after he denies Christ three times, Jesus gives him the opportunity, actually in John 21, it's in that same conversation I was just talking about, he asks him three times, do you love me, to Peter. And Peter gets to answer three times. And it's as if every time Peter answers, he's, he's erasing one of those denials. And so, but Peter gets this kind of, this bad rap. But, but when it comes to the cross, when it comes to the circumstances around the crucifixion, what about John? What about the disciple that Jesus loved? Matthew chapter 26 gives us a little bit of insight into this. I'm going to read beginning in verse 51. It says this, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now this is a great scene. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas has now led the soldiers to where Jesus is. He's betrayed him with a kiss. And now Jesus is about to be arrested. And oh, by the way, it's Peter that cuts the guy's ear off. I love that about Peter. But then Jesus says to him, put your sword back in its place. For, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds who had come out and the, ones who were, the soldiers who had come, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Pay very close attention to the next line. Underline it, highlight it, whatever you need to do. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now, when I was studying to get my biblical studies degree, I had a professor who wanted to make sure that everybody who walked out of there with a degree would make sure that we understood the definition of, the, of a very important word. It's the word all. And so he had something that he used to say almost every time we had a class. He said, all means all, and that's all that all means. That's the definition. The guy's name was Dr. Fink, by the way. We used to have a lot of fun with that. All means all, and that's all that all means. So which disciples fled when Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss? All of them. What about the disciple that Jesus loved? What about John? He fled. And what must have been going through his mind as he ran into the darkness below the Mount of Olives that night before Jesus' death? How far away did he get? Where did he stop? What was he thinking when he got there? I think it's only appropriate that when we look at the account of today's last words that we look at it from the book of John. Turn with me there, if you would, to John chapter 19, verse 23. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, he took the disciple to, to his home. He took her to his home. Now history tells us that a first century Jewish man typically wore five pieces of clothing. And the text seems to tell us that four soldiers near the cross have divided up the first four garments. But now they've, they've gotten to the fifth item and they need to decide who will get it. And so they start gambling for it. Now, this last piece is a seamless garment. It's seamless, and it's, it just, it's, it's worn underneath. And tradition tells us that most Jewish boys had this article of clothing given to them by their moms. There's a legend about Jesus, and there's no validation for this in history or in Scripture, but there's a legend about Jesus that when he left home for the last time to go out to do his public ministry, that Mary presented him with this garment then. But whether or not that was the case, and it was most likely not, but, but what we know to be true is that every Jewish man in the first century would have had this seamless undergarment given to him by his mother. Now, some of you have things like this in your life. I mean, for us, it's a, it's a very large green tub in our attic. And it's, I know exactly where it is. It's kind of in that back left corner. And, and when we open it, all these treasures are inside, all these wonderful memories from, from things that have happened in our lives. And so, you know, I have some items in there from, from when I was a child and, and, and we have joint checking. So it's a joint uh, bucket. So my wife has things in the bucket as well. And we see our, our childhoods are now interwoven in this bucket. And so we have these memories that we can pull out together and, and we can share and, and we can storytell. And Angela, a couple of years ago, she, uh, she made buckets for each of our boys. Our boys are nine and six. And, and she made these buckets with, with their names on them. And um, she decorates them because that's what she does. And she's very artistic. And th- the buckets are a little bit girly, which I've, I've tried to talk to her about because these are our boys' buckets. And, 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 you know, we need some Avengers characters or something to do with Star Wars in there somewhere. And, uh, and so these buckets are, you know, about this big. And, and she puts things in and, and, you know, little things that they've made, little drawings that they've done, little notes that they've written, things that they've said. And, and because... I'm trying to keep it to one bucket. When she's not around, I go through them and I start purging the buckets a little bit because I, I try to have a long view of this and I don't want them to leave with multiple buckets. So don't tell her about that. But the, um, um, I, I, you know, I'll go through and I'll see a drawing that wasn't very good, you know, and I'll, I'll take that out. And, and you know, try, so, but we have these memories with us that, that mean something. Some of you have things like this. Maybe it's the, it's the ticket from a sporting event that, that you went to when you were a kid, or maybe you went to with a parent, or it was a big sporting event that you always wanted to go to, and you've kept the souvenir from that day. Maybe it's a, it's a movie stub from, from a movie that you really loved and that you saw with a, a close friend. Maybe you held on to a card or, or a love letter, and, and some of you have keep these things with you. I mean, some of the women keep them in their, in their purse. Some of the, the guys, they'll fold up these little pieces of paper that, that mean something to them, and they'll, they'll keep it in, in their wallets. 
Today, I brought with me my copy of My Utmost for His Highest. This is a daily devotional book. It's very popular. It's been, been published all over the world and probably one of the most published books in the world. And, and this was given to me on my 16th birthday by my grandparents. And it was actually given to me by the granny that I'm shooting the video for right now and, uh, and, and my granddad. And so I've had this now almost 20 years. I, I've read it a majority of the days during that time. And I, I love this means something to me. And, and I remember after my grandfather died just a couple years ago, I, I, I remember the first time that I pulled this back out and, and I remember clutching it a little tighter because it, it meant something even then. It meant something a little bit more. And most of us have items like this that connect us to memories that bring joy or, or some type of emotion. And, and when these soldiers get to this last garment, this seamless undergarment that was made for Jesus by Mary, when they get to this garment, he in that moment looks up to speak to his mother. Imagine what is going through Mary's mind on this day. I mean, did she think back over his life and their lives together while she's standing there near the cross? I mean, perhaps she thinks back to the circumstances around his birth. Perhaps she wonders where those wise men are today, where the shepherds are today. Maybe she remembers the star. Maybe she remembers the gifts. Maybe she thinks back to how Joseph helped protect them and and take them out of Bethlehem and, and, and down into Egypt because Herod was so paranoid that one of the babies in Bethlehem was going to one day overthrow his kingdom. And maybe she remembers all the ramifications of of all that happened. And, and maybe she remembers the time they lost him. You remember this? Have you ever lost your kids, by the way? Like in a store or something, and they've been, they're just hiding behind the pants. They're there the whole time. But have you ever, have you ever lost a kid or, or had something happen in a mall or whatever? You know, they lost him at the temple in Jerusalem when he was 12. I mean, he kind of held back, to be honest. And he could do that because he was Jesus. But for her, you know, they, got, they left the temple and they get down the road and do you have him? No, do you have him? And they've lost him. Maybe, maybe she remembers that in that moment. Maybe she remembers the wedding they attended where she asked him to perform a miracle and turn the water into wine to keep the party going a little longer. Maybe she thinks about some of the people in Nazareth who are always ridiculing her and him. Maybe those people that just would never let it go and, and, and that always believed that she got pregnant, you know, that her pregnancy before she was married was, was something immoral and, and, and wrong and Maybe she remembers some of those people. We're under the impression that she's already lost a husband. There's there's no mention of Joseph in the Gospels in in quite some time. And after the birth of Jesus, Mary has given us some of the most beautiful poetic language in all of the scriptures. But we really don't know what she was thinking on the day of his death. Imagine as as a parent, if you're a parent in here, I mean, just imagine this for a second. Just put yourself in her shoes. I mean, she's standing there near the cross. She's standing close to him. She has no doubt viewed the beating he's taken. She has no doubt followed along the road as he made that merciless walk up the Via Dolorosa with people chanting and ridiculing and and mocking him. She sees the blood from the crown of thorns and from the, the spikes in his, in his hands and his feet. And as a mom, she stands close. 
Perhaps she hoped that, that her presence would comfort him or give him some measure of strength. The family members of, of others who've come before Jesus, who, who claim to be Messiah, false teachers, false messiahs, those people have been killed by the Romans. And here she makes no bones about the fact that she is this boy's mom and she is going to be with him to the end. This is incredible compassion. It's incredible courage. And Jesus, who is struggling just to breathe, has decided that he's going to use some of his words to speak to her. I read a couple of writers and commentators over the last couple of weeks who just pointed out with amazement. And when you think about it, I, I'm amazed by it as well. That with everything else going on, that with the agony he's enduring, with, with the salvation of all mankind in the balance, he takes just a moment to look up and comfort his mom. He calls her woman. A term that in this culture in the first century was a, a term of tremendous affection and, and affirmation and, and empowerment. He wanted to give her comfort. And yet in the same breath, he helps provide for her future. I mean, he takes responsibility all the way to the end as the oldest son in what was most likely a single parent home. He upholds the commandment to obey mother and father until the end. Woman, he says, behold your son. But he's not talking about himself. You see, because standing next to Mary is John. And so he turns to John and says, Behold your mother. Connecting them to one another. John has been with Jesus since the beginning, like Peter. I mean, he's walked with Jesus for about three years. He has spent as much or more time than any of the other disciples. He's been up close and personal to see the water turn to wine. He's seen thousands fed with just a few crackers and, and, and fish. He has, he's seen Jesus walk on water. He's seen healing. He has seen transformation. But around the cross, on the circumstances surrounding the cross, on the night of the Last Supper, John failed to watch and pray with him, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. John, with some of the others, fell asleep. When Jesus was questioned by the high priest the night before his death, he was actually mocked because his disciples were nowhere to be found. Where are your followers? Where's everyone who's with you? And according to the scriptures, they had all abandoned him, including John. In fact, the language that Matthew uses in chapter 26 brings with it this idea of shame. They're all ashamed of him. John had been so close to Jesus for so long, yet he fled with all the others. Now, many people who are Christ followers run or walk away from God for lots of different reasons. Maybe you can relate to some of these. I mean, some walk away because of a sin that was committed and, and guilt pushes them away. Some walk away because they've allowed doubt to creep in. Some walk away out of just 
selfish interests, just letting things cloud their mind, just, just getting distracted by the things of the world and, and allowing our, our own selfish desires to get in the way. And in far too many circles, we find Christ followers who will look at people who are away from God and they use words like backslider or hypocrite or reprobate. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been called some of these things. Maybe, maybe there is someone in here today who can relate to being away. And maybe you come to church, maybe you come to worship every Sunday as often as you get here and what you're really thinking when you walk in the door is how does God feel about me? Because I'm not as close as I want to be. I'm not as close as I used to be. I have fallen away. I've got things in my life that have gotten in the way. It's not the way it used to be. How would God respond if I even tried to come all the way back? I'm not sure I could. I mean, if I try to let go of some of these things, if, 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 I, if I try to get involved serving again, if I try to be an active participant in the church again, how does God feel about that? How would God respond if I tried to come back? Well, how did he respond when John returned? I mean, here's John who has run away in the darkness the night before, who was nowhere to be found, who had had abandoned him, who was ashamed of Jesus, who was ashamed of all that was going on. And Jesus, from the cross, he reaches out to him with unconditional love. He gives him unmerited favor or grace. Jesus responds with forgiveness. Instantly, he lets him off the hook. John didn't have to explain where he'd been. Jesus didn't have to ask any probing questions. He didn't try to make him feel bad about himself. Jesus didn't look at John and say, I needed you last night. Do you know what they've done to me? Do you know how they treated me? Do you know the words they've used against me? Instead, Jesus just picked up right where they left off and gave John perhaps the most important human purpose that he could going forward. See, in the middle of his own suffering, Jesus is teaching us how to handle relationships. And more than anything else, he's teaching us how to handle those those who have fallen short, how to handle those who have messed up in the most important of relationships in the most crucial moment. Jesus is teaching us how to show grace and that we should show grace to those who have offended or abandoned us in our hour of greatest need, those who have treated us absolutely the worst, those who have pushed us the farthest away. The Apostle Paul writes about the work on the cross and the impact it has on relationships. In Colossians chapter one, it says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20 And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul reminds us that at some point we were all enemies of God. We all begin in this way because of sin. We all begin with a broken relationship with God. So none of us can sit here and say that we've never offended God. None of us can sit here and say that would never be true of me. 
None of us can sit here and say, I've never had hostility in my heart towards God. We all begin in that place. And in the midst of our hostility, how does God treat us? He loves us. He loves us first. He sent Christ to die for us. And that death did something we could never do on our own. The Bible says it reconciles us back to God. And by reconciliation, it's the idea that he makes us one with God again. He makes it possible for us to be one with God again by by paying a debt that we could never pay on our own, by removing the barrier, by removing the hostility, by breaking down the walls. He makes it possible for us to be one with God again through the atonement of his blood. Atonement, the word you could break it up, it's at one meant. Reconciliation is to make us at one with God. And Jesus makes that type of power available in our relationships. There's more than just him making it right with God here. There's more than just the forgiveness for our sins because John didn't, Jesus just didn't look at John and say, I forgive you. Everything's okay. Instead, he took it a step further and he gave John fresh purpose. And because of the power of the cross, Whenever the cross invades any area of our lives, something brand new begins to happen, including our relationships. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us a further purpose beyond just forgiveness. Jesus died to to bridge the divide between man and God. He died to bring healing to broken relationships. And beyond that, he's given us a purpose. And that purpose is to be the messengers of this healing. That purpose for us as Christ followers, we are to be the restorers of broken relationships. But far too often, we're the ones that don't want to just, we don't want to take time to deal with it. Because relationships are just a little bit too messy for us sometimes, aren't they? It's easier just to write people off. It's easier just to cast people aside. It's easier just to gossip. It's easier just to be cynical. It's easier just to be jaded. Just cut off communication. But Jesus took time to restore relationship even on the cross. He didn't have to talk to John. We could have had something, plenty to talk to, plenty to talk about just in talking to his mom. What a powerful moment that is. But he goes beyond that with this moment on the cross and uses some of his last words as he is struggling to get breath to set the ultimate standard for us for how we are to treat those in our lives that God has given us to care about. So let me ask you a question. Are you demonstrating that Christ died on the cross by how you treat others? 
Are you demonstrating that Christ died to make us again one with God through your relationships? And how you treat your spouse? Are you demonstrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If people were to get around you and and hear how you talk about your spouse or better yet, how you talk about them when they're not around. What do they find out about you? Are they finding someone who's honest and willing to work on, on some of the most important relationship that God could ever possibly give you? Or are they finding something broken and damaged and wounded? What about in how you treat your parents? And this is not just for our students that are in the room but also for us as adults. How are you treating your folks? Jesus took time to honor his mom, even in the most difficult of moments. What about in how you treat your friends? Are you, have you just thrown someone aside or are you taking time to, to deal with people in, with, with honesty and, and integrity and when something comes up between the two of you, is your relationship marked by the reconciled work of Jesus on the cross? Is your relationship evidence that we have a risen Savior today? Or when people watch how you deal with relationships, do they see something entirely different? And even the scriptures at one point say, it's, you know, it's one thing how you treat your friends, which some people struggle with. But the scriptures would go on to say, you know, it's entirely something different for how you treat your enemies for how you treat those who've abandoned you, for how you treat those who you don't feel like they've treated you correctly. Maybe they haven't treated you. Maybe they've wronged you in the most blatant of ways. Maybe there's someone in your life who has abandoned you, who has fled. How you treat them is either evidence for the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, or it's evidence against it. You know, there's nothing any of us could do to restore our relationship with God. Jesus took the step. He was the one who reached out, even though he didn't do anything wrong. God took it upon himself by sending Jesus to bring reconciliation. And Jesus shows us that if someone has offended you, wronged you, lied about you, that we should not sit back and wait for them to come to us, but we should make the step of initiating grace and mercy and forgiveness as far as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. You see, forgiveness is the heart of mending relationships. And Jesus made it possible for us to be at one with God so we could be at one with each other. You know, before she died, one popular secular humanist in the late 80s said this about Christians. She said, you know, what I envy most about Christians is your forgiveness. And then sadly, she would go on to say, I have nobody to forgive me. Some of the greatest gifts that we give to each other are in the relationships with the people that God gives us every day and how we treat one another with grace and mercy and forgiveness, no matter how tough it gets. But apart from Jesus, there's no way to make things right. But with Jesus, no relationship is out of reach. It may just take a little extra time. 
So I want to challenge you when it comes to your relationships to take a little extra time to be the one who does something that really just doesn't seem right in the moment. In fact, it feels just a little bit uncomfortable. Be the one who's willing to go out of your way to do whatever it takes to initiate forgiveness and grace and mercy and love. Be the one who is evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus, no matter how it looks to others, no matter what anyone says, be the one to be the evidence by taking the next step, by going farther than anybody else is willing to go. Let's pray together. Today, I don't know who goes through your mind when we bring up broken relationships. I don't know what the images are in your head. For some of you, it's parents. For some of you, it's siblings. For some of you, it's once friends. When I mention the word enemy, some of you think of ex-spouses, former bosses in a job, whatever it is. But in this moment, would you ask God to give you the power to forgive, the same power that he gave Jesus on the cross, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, can give you the power to overcome even the most difficult relational circumstances. If there's anyone here today who's never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I would challenge you to take just a moment today to reach out to God and say, I believe that Jesus died to make me one with you again. I believe that he died to cover my sins, to remove the barrier. And I believe that he rose from the dead that I might live forever with you. If you need to pray and trust Christ as Savior today, would you please visit the help center we have set out in the lobby. Someone there wants to pray with you. Anything you've got going on in your life today, any relationships we can pray with you about, allow us to do that. God, I trust your Holy Spirit who gives the words not only that we read but the words that we speak on any given Sunday to do your work in all of our lives and help us to take our next steps in our journey with you. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here with us again this morning.